0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Getting Ahead of the Curve, Identifying and Managing Obesity in Primary Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DBP 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, I'm Dr. Domenica Rubino from the Washington Center for Weight Management and Research in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to this educational activity on identifying and managing obesity in primary care. I'd like to begin by highlighting some of the current gaps in the management of obesity and provide you with some information on ways to optimize health outcomes in people with or at risk for obesity. So, these are some of the common gaps in obesity management. You know, first of all, we know the primary care providers are well positioned and they're, and they're working with people with obesity. However, many patients report having uh, a lack of knowledge about how to treat obesity or confidence or time or skills in, in really trying to help counsel a patient. And even though many, paci- many physicians acknowledge that obesity is a chronic disease, um, we know that anti-obesity medications are underutilized. So I'm hoping that we can address that today. So obesity is an increasingly prevalent chronic disease that really warrants early intervention. And when you look at this map from the CDC, you can see on the left is 2011, and over on the right is 2020. And what you can see as the colors are going from green to yellow to peach to orange to red, what we see is the average BMI all over the country, over the U.S. population, is increasing. And in addition, there are certain ethnic groups that are definitely at greater risk. And so you can see for non-Hispanic Black population and Hispanics, as well as American Indian or Alaskan Natives, you can see in some of those states, the obesity prevalence is actually tremendously high. But what we also understand is early intervention really prevents complications of obesity. And these complications are probably what you see every single day in the clinic, right? We know that excess weight or obesity impacts sleep apnea, pulmonary disease, asthma, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is going to be one of the largest uh, risk factors for cirrhosis, um, basically from obesity, gallbladder disease, a fair number of gynecologic complications, including PCOS, which is starting earlier, mechanical complications such as osteoarthritis, mobility issues, and of course, we're very familiar with cardiometabolic risk of both coronary artery disease, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and hypertension. Um, so it is really these things that we see all the time. We know that we can help treat them by treating their weight management. And we also know when we identify people with pre-obesity, you know, early changes, pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, et cetera, that early intervention can actually work very well. And you can see over there on the right, the difference between early intervention and delayed intervention, where you see progressive um, exacerbation of some of these comorbidities. So why is everybody talking about obesity management? Well, you know, in the past, obesity generally was ignored. Uh, I don't think we really realized um, the extent to which it's controlled physiologically, but we really didn't know what to do. We didn't know what worked. We didn't have medications, even though we knew that typically people would actually get better as they lost weight. But now we really know that many of the complications can be either prevented or reversed with weight loss. And we know that even at low levels of weight loss, like 5%, we can start to reverse those things. The scientific work over the last 30 years has really helped us understand, much in a much better way, the physiology of weight regulation. And now we're seeing the development of truly effective medications that can treat obesity and improve these comorbid conditions. So the first challenge question, why is it so hard for individuals with obesity to lose weight? So obesity is a chronic disease with a complex etiology. So here we see obesity and It's depicted here by an iceberg, right? But what we always forget to realize and what we now realize over decades is that it's actually incredibly complex. So the iceberg is just the tip, right? And underneath, there's a whole lot going on, right? So we're going to talk today about the physiology. We know that the behavior is complicated. We also know that there's a strong genetic risk for obesity, and we know this uh, from information from twin studies. And even though most of the genetics are polygenic, we do know that there's epigenetic uh, impacts as well of the environment. And we know that the environment we live in is incredibly complex with a lot of factors that actually promote obesity as well. So it's, there's a lot more to it, basically. So the brain is central to the regulation of weight. And it is balancing energy intake and energy expenditure in order to achieve homeostasis. But just like that tip of the iceberg, what you realize is to achieve homeostasis, it's incredibly complicated, right? So we have genetics, we have influence of medications, because we know that some of the medications we give people for depression, for example, result in weight gain. We know there's complicated gut hormones that are telling the brain, Hungry, not hungry, satiated, full. We know that there are hormones that come from the fat cells, in particular leptin, although there's a myriad of other hormones now, uh, being its own endocrine organ. Uh, But leptin tells the brain our energy reserves are short, and that can drive appetite. And we know that there's hormones from the skeletal muscle as well, which a lot of people don't think about because they think about just burning calories. And actually, the signaling that happens from the muscle cell We find, send signals to the brain to tell the brain that it's in balance, et cetera. So it's very complicated. And you can see that this balance between hunger and satiety and feeling full is coming from all of these feedback mechanisms from the periphery, as we say. So from the gut, from adipose tissue, from skeletal muscle. Energy expenditure is also very complicated. And it's not just purposeful activity that we do, it's also spontaneous physical activity, fidgeting, moving around, et cetera, and also obviously basal metabolic rate, which is proportional to a person's weight. Typically, there is not abnormal function to the basal metabolic rate, but what there is is a wide genetic variation in how active a person is. So factors that also impact weight, as, we, as I had stated in the previous slide, the environment makes a big difference, right? We have high-fat, high-carb foods, and we can easily get them anywhere, just not even walk a block and get food. We are sedentary. We don't move. We have long work hours. We don't sleep. Um, generally, we don't really have to move much to accomplish our day, and yet we're tired at the end of the day. We also have hedonic aspects which we've totally exploited in the environment where the types of foods we have available are high concentration, high caloric, high density, reward, reinforcing a sense of reward at the level of your brain, a sense of pleasure. It also has great uh, associations with cultural and social associations, desire and wanting. And so it's often the hedonic aspects of feeding that actually override the homeostatic aspects Uh, of food intake. So you can see over on the right, we're balancing hunger, satiety, energy intake, energy expenditure, homeostasis, coupled with this relatively hedonic environment. The combination actually becomes very difficult to even envision not having excess weight held on. So what happens after weight loss? Well, in this complex um, situation that we've already described, what happens is your body tries to protect fat mass, and it increases the energy intake because you get hungrier and you don't feel as full. It also decreases your energy expenditure. So for the same amount of exercise, now you're actually burning less as a form of adaptation. There's alterations of all of these gut hormones in the opposite direction as before, and the net effect is to try to regain weight. So when we see patients that say they've lost weight but they've regained that has nothing to do with a sense of willpower what it actually has to do with is this physiologic adaptation driving the regain because your body doesn't see this as a good idea to lose weight it sees it as a threat and it will defend the fat mass which then results in weight gain now There's a lot of different factors here, and you can see by this uh, drawing between genes, biological factors, environment, and behavior, all interfacing for a given individual in an effort to protect the fat mass. And so you can see here, weight loss causes metabolic and hedonic adaptations, driving energy intake, and weight loss also decreases movement and physical activity in an effort to conserve weight. So what we're looking at with what we have learned from physiology is our old assumptions that behavior is what drives physiology, behavior is what drives the development of obesity, that actually we don't believe that that is the case. That in case, you know, in the past we thought you're just eating more calories, just stop eating as many calories, you'll just lose weight. We always used to say a calorie is a calorie. Well, it turns out that's actually not the case. And... We always thought that physical activity just burns calories directly and there's a direct linear relationship. Well, it turns out it's actually a lot more complex than that, and that what we believe now is that it is the physiologic regulation of energy balance or the dysregulation that then drives behavior. There have been tremendous changes in the modern diet that alter energy balance. We, The chemical composition of foods has changed greatly, and that what happens is What we need to do for obesity, I should say, is that we need to re-regulate this abnormal physiology, and that way we can see some success. So one thing we know is that BMI and waist circumference, the higher you go, the greater the BMI, the greater the waist circumference, we know that this is associated with increasing disease risk. And so if you can do waist circumferences on your patients, they can be very helpful, in particular, Those with a BMI less than 40. Once a BMI is greater than 40, you already know the disease risk is elevated. But it is important to pay attention to waist circumference and BMI. And also for patients, it gives them a nice thing to see how are their clothes fitting? Is their waist circumference coming down? Because we know that waist circumference is associated with, as you lower your waist circumference, you have less cardiovascular disease, less risk for diabetes. And you can see here in this diagram that as the BMI goes up and as the waist circumference goes up, so does the all-cross mortality. So what we understand about weight loss is that we don't need as much weight loss as we think we do or as we think the patient does uh, to improve complications. And you can look at this list. Some things such as diabetes prevention uh, or diabetes, we start to see improvements actually at 3%, 3% to 5%, with greater improvements up to 15%. And yet there are are things like um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or osteoarthritis that really we need more than 10% to really start seeing the improvement. And you can take a look at this list for yourself. Additionally, what's important to understand, when these conditions and when we see that improvement, what we're really seeing is a dose-dependent effect of weight loss improving tissue level, cellular level inflammation. And you can see here that with a greater amount of weight loss, we see improvement in insulin sensitivity in the adipose tissue. We see improvement in liver insulin sensitivity, in muscle ins- sensitivity, etc. So it is true that the more weight loss we see, the better we see uh, tissue level inflammation and therefore the comorbidities that exist. So when we start discussing weight management with our patients, you've probably heard of the 5A strategy. The idea, first of all, is you need to ask permission to talk about this, and this is largely because there's been such an incredible stigma around obesity. The next thing really is to assess the individual's, and the individual's history, their medical history, their clinical history, and really try to help them tie in sort of the comorbidities, et cetera. Then the next is advise, and advise is really a discussion, figuring out where they are in terms of lifestyle interventions, figuring out would they be open to the use of an FDA-approved device or pharmacotherapy, or are you going to be looking at endoscopy or bariatric surgery? And typically, these are stepwise, although I think that the field is really moving to using lifestyle as sort of supportive and foundational with the addition of medication or a device uh, and then potentially surgery for a given patient. This is a discussion, and so then you agree on the goals and the treatment plan. And I think forming goals that are realistic and consistent with a person's values can be very helpful. And then your role is to assist, basically, help with drivers, motivation, any barriers that both of you uh, figure out. So what about this weight history? Well, it really is important to get an idea of where someone's been, what they have done, what has helped them before, etc. So you can see over on the left a list of questions. Um, there is a mnemonic if you like mnemonics. I don't like mnemonics; they don't help me remember anything. However, you really want to get um, a good history, and I find doing a, a weight graph actually very helpful. So you can see over on the right, the weight history can be translated into a graph, and you can see, first of all, on this graph, a gradual increase in weight. But sometimes what you may see is different life events that actually lead to weight gain or weight loss. So very typically, some people gain weight when they get married, typically both uh, partners do, but actually then someone may lose weight, but then you see that they may regain it, save with pregnancy. And then oftentimes you will hear that people are not able, a a woman is not able to lose all of the weight that she um, gained during pregnancy. And they're now at a new level of weight loss. And they may be able to lose weight with an intervention, say 20 pounds, but then they hit menopause or hit stress, or there's a job or caring for an ailing parent, et cetera. And they're not able to do what they were doing before. And the next thing they know, they're up 10, 20 or more pounds. And now they're stable at that new level. So I find the weight loss history very helpful to sort of target what are the things that have happened before and what has been successful before. So let's talk briefly about stigma. I think what's really important is to recognize in society there is a stigma that discriminates against weight. This idea that it's all about willpower and unfortunately has not caught up with the science that we have over the last 30 years. So you can see over on the left, you can see this externalized stigma that exists in society and understand that that's internalized by the patient. And it can lead to hopelessness and despair. It can lead to healthcare avoidance because people are ashamed or say, last visit, you said you got to get some of that weight off. And guess what? They haven't lost weight or they've actually gained weight. They don't want to come back. If They may not want to exercise because they feel embarrassed to go to a gym because they don't want to be next to people who don't have any extra weight. They may have social avoidance. And all of this internalized stigma and shame can actually lead to increased morbidity and mortality. So there actually was a joint international consensus of a group, uh, both uh, surgeons as well as um, people in medicine. And really, I, I would encourage you to just take a look at it. But the fundamental issue is that is accepting and recognizing that science understands that weight regulation is not entirely under volitional control, that it's complex, and that we really can't tolerate stigma and discrimination in our society. Individuals need to be treated with respect and dignity, and we need to encourage any initiatives and support any initiatives to prevent weight discrimination in our society. Now, actions and words matter, right? First do no harm means paying attention to how you might speak to a patient about their weight, et cetera. Generally, I think understanding that up to 80% of obesity may be genetically determined or where you sit sort of on that spectrum between overweight and obesity, that's fundamental. You need to understand that and you need to sometimes explain that to your patient and take some of the pressure off this will thing. Um, You need to be positive, focus on the benefits, have resources for your patient. Be very aware of nonverbal communication because actually oftentimes it's an eyebrow or a smirk or something that actually can alienate someone. And really be environmentally aware in your office. Have chairs that are appropriate size, have gowns that fit, have tables that actually adjust in case someone can't climb up on that table. So we're going to start shifting a little toward, you know, why and when about weight loss medications, and these were some recent recommendations uh, that came out from ACE, and really just assessing are there weight-related complications, what is the BMI, and oftentimes it may be important to actually treat the obesity first with anti-obesity medications, thereby decreasing the risk of that disease or improving that complication. There have been some uh, recommendations by the US PSTF uh, in 2018 that recognized, uh, in evaluating over 32 pharmacobased weight loss trials, that there was greater mean weight loss in those who used pharmacotherapy compared to placebo, and a much greater likelihood of achieving at least five percent weight loss which, as you know from that previous diagram, we can see improvement in comorbidities and tissue-level inflammation. So how do the antiobesity medications work? Well, most of them target the brain, because what we talked about is the brain is central to all of this information, right? And you can see here, it's a nice diagram of the various anti medications that are currently available. Laraglutide and semaglutide and bupropion work on decreasing reward, and also can work on increasing satiety, helping a person feel a sense of fullness, and decreasing appetite. Phantamine also works on satiety and decreasing appetite. There have been some uh, new medical device, which is a capsule that's a super absorbent hydrogel that you, it, it provides basically a mechanical sense of satiety. You take the capsules with water, it swells uh, in the ap- in the stomach, And then it breaks down and is digested. And you do that before lunch and before dinner. Um, Also, the GLP-1s, as you may be aware, also have an impact on the GI tract, decreasing gastric emptying. The hydrogels, in addition to feeling satiety, use the stretch receptors. So it's a mechanoreceptor effect in the stomach. And then there's also Orlistat, which can decrease intestinal absorption. The net goal is to decrease intake. So, what about the average weight loss when we look at active agents versus placebo for appetite regulation? And here you can see the various agents uh, currently that are available uh, for people without type 2 diabetes. And you can see the average weight loss between uh, 11 and 10 percent for topiramate. For naltrexone bupropion, you can see between six and nine percent. In the blue bars is the weight loss with medication. The orange bars are the placebo control, so you can see that it varies depending on the trial. You can see liraglutide um, about eight percent with liraglutide three milligrams, whereas with semaglutide two point four milligrams, we actually are seeing more like fifteen to sixteen percent. Obviously, you have to subtract placebo uh, weight loss uh, in the orange. The red box uh, around liraglutide is that the scale maintenance trial showed six point two percent. But everybody in the SCALE maintenance trial already lost 6%. So it brings up this idea that medication in people who are very successful at losing weight may actually uh, be used for maintenance. Uh, And in this group for maintenance, they lost an additional 6% for a total of 12%. um, And there was very good maintenance on that placebo group. Uh, And then over there, you can see on the hydrogel in the GLOW study, uh, gave 6.4% versus the placebo control of 4.4%. In the hydrogel group, though, uh, there was some interesting evidence that those with prediabetes uh, actually were able to lose more. And we don't understand the mechanism of that. An additional thing besides the weight loss is understanding, for example, in this trial, liraglutide 3 milligrams reduced visceral adiposity over four weeks, And so you can see in this trial of um, women, 37% black women, 24% Hispanic women with an average BMI of 37.7 at the age of 50, the red lines going down were decreases in visceral adiposity compared to placebo. So in the group, even though you see some losing weight, some gaining weight, these are individual data, you can see that many people with liraglutide were able to decrease their visceral fat. And this may be an additional way in which GLP-1 family can decrease cardiovascular risk. So let's talk about personalizing obesity management to help support weight loss over the long term. We're going to talk about a couple of patients here. This is Ashley. She's a 22-year-old woman who was just diagnosed with prediabetes. She's struggled with weight her whole life. She's had several different attempts to lose weight, and each time she's lost maybe five, seven pounds. Uh, except typically regains because she really struggles with craving. But now she's, you know, very urgently wants to lose weight because she's getting married in 10 months, and Mm -hmm. she's pretty frustrated. Um, You can see her vitals below. She has a BMI of 36, um, basically not hypertensive, but obviously could benefit uh, from some weight loss. She's not taking any medications, but one of her risk factors is she hangs out with her friends on the weekend, um, and does uh, like to drink. So let's talk briefly about prediabetes. Um, the USPSTF recommendations in 2021 really recommend screening for prediabetes and now, even as young as age six, uh, when an individual has evidence of obesity. So it's very important to screen and diagnose for prediabetes because as we know, about 9% a year can go on to develop diabetes. And you can read these recommendations here, but it's always good as a reminder. The DPP experience demonstrated for us the benefits of modest weight loss in improving the risk of progression from prediabetes to diabetes. And so we know that with every kilo lost, we decrease that risk by about 16%. We also know that we need about 10%. We kind of max out uh, on that improvement. But for her, we may want to discuss that, although given the fact that she's 22, she may be less worried about diabetes in particular. But it is important to understand and to underline with your patients that they may not need that much weight loss uh, in order to improve that risk. So let's talk about anti-obesity medications demonstrating diabetes prevention. So we're going to, if we decide we want to give her an anti-obesity medication to help her, it'll be important to know what is available to us and what is there evidence for improving the risk from going from prediabetes to diabetes. So you can see that Orlistat decreased the risk by about 45% at four years. Although I expect for a 22-year-old woman, she will not want to take Orlistat given the potential side effects, um, the gastrointestinal side effects. The SCALE trial at three milligrams a day did show a decrease in risk of 79% over a three-year period. The CEQAL trial looked at it and showed a decreased risk of about 89% at two years. And the step one semaglutide 2.4 milligrams once weekly also showed about 84% decrease in progression at one year. So there's several different medications that could be beneficial in moving her toward normal glycemia. All right, so let's take a look uh, at some data with the utilization of semaglutide 2.4 milligrams for two years. These are recent data um, that have been reported from the STEP5 trial. And what we see is in the semaglutide group, about 50% of people had prediabetes. And at the end of two years, we see 80% of those are, now have normal glycemia, with about 20% still remaining with prediabetes. In contrast, the placebo group, which started out about 42% pre-diabetes, we see a smaller fraction, uh, about 37% that shift to normal glycemia, but we see about 60% that are still have pre-diabetes, and we see about 4% just under 4% that have now converted to diabetes. So we definitely see a greater improvement in those with pre-diabetes shifting to normal glycemia with the use of semaglutide compared to placebo. Uh, The um, side effects typically with GLP-1s have been reported in a lot of different places. And in the two-year trial, it was very similar to the one-year data with predominantly gastrointestinal symptoms uh, that basically resolved with dose change and a gradual dose uh, introduction and relatively well-tolerated. No other safety signals for that. So we talked about preventing diabetes. What about preventing cardiovascular disease? So we do know that anti-obesity pharmacotherapy does improve cardiovascular risk factors as well as comorbidities. And you can see here, all of them decrease waist circumference, so indirectly are improving cardiometabolic function. For blood pressure, most of them will lower blood pressure based on lowering the weight. bupropion in the naltrexone-bupropion combination, you may see an increase in blood pressure, but not in everybody. And occasionally in fentermine to pyramid, you may see an increase in blood pressure. You do see an increase in heart rate, in naltrexone, bupropion and in the GLP-1s, liraglutide and semaglutide. And you can see some other, as you would expect, consistent changes in cholesterol, but typically we see it more in triglycerides and we see blood sugar improvement in particular with the GLP-1s. So let's take a look at cardiovascular outcomes with the use of anti-obesity medications because, actually, it was young, but you're going to have people who are at greater cardiovascular risk. So fentramine 2 and naltrexone do not have cardiovascular outcome data because both of those studies, for various reasons, were prematurely terminated. They are still on the market and approved, though. For liraglutide 3.0, there actually is uh, post-hoc analysis data that actually shows a decrease in MACE with the use of loraglutide compared to placebo. For semaglutide, 2.4 milligrams, there's a SELECT study that's ongoing now, which is really um, looking at people with cardiovascular risk factors without diabetes, because historically that's been an issue, is the improvement of diabetes then in turn improving the cardiovascular risk. So the SELECT trial, which is over 17,000 patients, These are patients only with cardiovascular risk, but not type 2 diabetes. So we're anxiously awaiting that data. So there are a few safety considerations to actually be thinking about when you're considering medication. Um, Orlistat, very commonly, you um, you can get discharge and oily evacuation and fecal incontinence, generally not popular. All of the drugs are contraindicated in pregnancy, by the way. Um, because of the fat malabsorption with the use of Orlistat, uh, you want to really be careful of multivitamin administration. They're not going to get the absorption. They want to take it, you want them to take it away from Orlistat, et cetera. So it's something to think about. to to pyramid, um, typical things are paresthesias uh, in the hands and the feet, some dysgeusia, some change in taste, a metallic taste to the mouth, constipation, insomnia, dry mouth. Um, mm-hmm. Again, contraindications would be uh, glaucoma, increased pressures, hyperthyroidism, and the safety consideration is, as you said, is the REMS. Uh, you do want to monitor for mood and sleep disorders and any potential cognitive impairment. For naltrexone, bupropion, uh, more typically, you'll get some nausea initially. They need to take the, take the medication with food. You can get some constipation, some headache, uh, some dizziness, and insomnia, A contraindication would be a seizure disorder uh, because the bupropion can lower seizure threshold. Anybody with bulimia, this would be contraindicated because of the vomiting and the potential to aggravate hypokalemia and potential seizures. Any kind of abrupt alcohol discontinuation. um, And again, somebody with binge drinking. You also want to pay attention to opioid use. Uh, And another consideration to remember is that prior to surgery, your patient should be off naltrexone for about a week. So that's important to keep in mind. If someone's about to go to surgery, it wouldn't be an ideal medication. And other safety considerations would obviously be changes in mood, increase in blood pressure, uh, any kind of hepatotoxicity because of the naltrexone component. In terms of the hydrogel, typically GI-related, as you you might suspect. uh, Obviously, pregnancy is an issue for anyone. Um, And it could alter the absorption of medication. So you want to be Uh, judicious in how you use it. In terms of the GLP-1s, liraglutide and semaglutide have very common uh, typical adverse events, mostly GI. Sometimes you can see some headache uh, and some fatigue as well. There's contraindications in terms of a personal family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma, or MEN2, um, and obviously pregnancy. And then there would be safety considerations um, In rodents, there is the formation of thyroid C-cell tumors. It's seen in rodents. We don't really know the implication in terms of how it impacts humans. Acute pancreatitis, um, you'd want to pay attention for pancreatitis. And if someone has had a history of uh, acute pancreatitis recently, gallbladder disease, gallstones form or can form with rapid weight loss. And also, um, it is thought that GOP-1s can slow the gallbladder gallbladder contractility. So when we're choosing an anti-obesity medication, there was a recent publication, you know, we've got the five A's and we've got the five C's. I'm not sure what happened to the B's, but anyway. So it really is important. Think about their comorbidities. Can you get more bang for your buck? Can the medicine help the comorbidity and help the weight? Think about the cues uh, for the patient. Um, Does the patient have appetite control issues? Do they have craving issues? Also, do they prefer a certain modality? Do they want an injection? Do they want a pill? You may have to think about combinations. First of all, anyone using medicine should really be thinking about the addition of lifestyle modifications with the medication. And in fact, the medication with, helps the lifestyle, helps that behavioral change as they feel that they get better control over food. Oftentimes, what you see is a change in that behavior. People start to exercise. They feel better about themselves, et cetera. Also, take a look at cost and coverage. That obviously is an issue. Can they afford it? Will their insurance pay for it? And really, fundamentally, are there any contraindications, as we sort of alluded to uh, for Ashley? And are there certain cautions? And you need to talk about that individually with each patient based on their uh, situation. So which anti-obesity medication would you recommend for Ashley? So it really is important to take a look at Ashley's history and talk with her because there's other things that you need to be thinking about. There are some considerations. First of all, she's young. She's of reproductive age. And anyone utilizing a medication for weight loss, you need to make sure there's birth control. There also is a risk mitigation strategy um, that needs to be followed for the use of fentramine topiramate. Uh, because topiramate can actually, or has been associated with cleft palate abnormalities. So you want to assess that. You want to assess how reliable will her use of birth control be, et cetera. You also, she drinks on the weekend with her friends. You got to find out how much she's drinking. At least get a decent idea, because bupropion uh, would not be appropriate for her, uh, given the potential of alcohol use, and bupropion to lower seizure threshold. You'd want to ask about if she's had any loss of consciousness, any head trauma, that kind of thing. Also, you want to talk with her about short-term versus long-term expectations. I mean, her eye is on the wedding and fitting into the dress. The reality is, is that management of weight is actually a long-term chronic management. And just as you, you would use medication for hypertension, if you stopped the medication, their blood pressure would go back up. The same thing is going to happen with weight loss medications as well. So it's important to get a sense that this would be chronic management and also have realistic expectations. Ashley weighs 220 pounds. She may dream of being 150 pounds, but it is not likely for her to lose 70 pounds in 10 months. Uh, So it's not realistic. I think going for 10%, she'd probably feel a lot more comfortable. And also you decrease her prediabetes risk That probably would be more the appropriate target, but you would have to haggle that out with Ashley. And in terms of cravings, most of the medications, uh, as you know from that earlier slide, can impact on craving. Some impact more. And again, there's going to be some kind of individual response for that. So let's talk about Ashley's mother. So um, you guys are family practitioners, and as you know, you get to know the whole family. And uh, weight is often an issue for the whole family, but she and Ashley want to lose weight together in times for the wedding. Um, Ashley's mom, Alicia, is perimenopausal, and her weight has been increasing, uh, and it's not obvious to her. And um, her husband wants to eat high protein, high fat. He's lost 10 pounds on a keto diet. She's frustrated because she tried it and she wasn't able to lose any weight. Um, And her job is very demanding in terms of her time. She's really anxious about the wedding. Uh, She worries about her daughter, who's out uh, very late at night. So her BMI is 32.7. Her waist circumference is 33 inches. Um, She's normotensive, but her heart rate's a little bit high. And she is taking lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide as well as pravastatin. So she already has several uh, comorbidities associated uh, with her weight and her recent weight gain. So some of the things, I think, really to think about for Alicia is, first of all, perimenopause. Um, It's increasingly recognized that in the perimenopause, um, women start gaining weight, start noticing mood shifts and insomnia well before menopause. And usually, they will complain of upper abdominal obesity, and they will often complain that nothing changed, and all of a sudden, their pants don't fit. So this is very, very common, Um, And you will come across that. In addition to part of perimenopause, we also see an increase in sleep apnea in women right around this age and going into menopause. And it really is important to get a good sleep history. She's already not sleeping very much because she has anxiety. We see anxiety quite commonly. Many people eat when they're anxious or drink when they're anxious. So you'll always really want to assess for any concomitant mood disorder. And these things really tend to cluster in the perimenopause. I think being aware of her other comorbidities that put her at risk, we already know she has hypertension and hyperlipidemia, and with the increase in weight, if she does have sleep apnea, that's going to aggravate her cardiometabolic function as well. Now, the family dynamics around weight loss are always interesting. Um, Husband and wives don't always lose weight well together. Um, People respond to different diets, and we know that, different dietary interventions. So some people Might do very well with keto, and other people might do very well with something that's more balanced with whole grains, et cetera. So, there there really is not one intervention for any particular person. The dynamic interaction between spouses um, can be very interesting regarding weight. Men typically lose weight faster, they are taller in general, they have more muscle mass. So, inevitably, the husband loses weight. Faster, and women have a lot of other hormonal things going on that actually hold on to weight it's also important to sort of assess is one person one spouse trying to get the other person to lose weight and vice versa. Understanding that dynamic can actually be helpful when you're counseling each one of them, and the same with parent child relationships as well. Um, there are often psychological issues around how food is managed, how emotions are managed, et cetera, at home, that could make a difference if you knew about them and asked about them, um, and letting each person sort of have their space with that. So that's important. So which anti-obesity medication might you recommend to Alicia? So when you're initiating anti-obesity medication therapy... What you're trying to do is match the right agent to the right patient. And the reality is you don't know in advance. So you want to talk to the patient. It's going to be a bit of trial and error until you work on tolerability and efficacy once you've ruled out all that other stuff. You usually want to do a gradual titration to the dose that's been approved by efficacy and tolerability. However, I think it's really important to understand that you may... Um, be okay with a lower dose. All you want with medication is to support the behavioral changes and support some of the physiology we've been talking about. There's a nice chart here about the gradual introduction of these medications. And again, with any of the starting doses, if it's too much and someone doesn't tolerate it, but they want to continue to see if it's efficacious, you can just continue at the lower dose or drop down to the lower dose. So you want to monitor for efficacy, safety, and tolerability. Typically, the recommendation is to monitor every month and then for the first three months and then after that, about every three months. But obviously, you're going to use your clinical judgment. You're looking for safety. You're looking for tolerability. How are they managing it? And oftentimes, I would say, you need to help them see the progress, all right? Because this is where it comes down to expectations. People are not going to necessarily lose three pounds a week with these medications so you want to help them look at how are their clothes fitting are they feeling less short of breath are their blood sugars getting better how are they feeling are they sleeping better etc and what you will see is a gradual remodeling but you do have to reformat reframe it for people and help them figure out how they're seeing that success of the medicine because everybody has sort of fantasy expectations of the weight loss process and We do know that patients who have regularly scheduled maintenance visits regain less weight. So if you're able to, try to have them come back more frequently and get that feedback. Uh, And that can be a shorter appointment, but just to see how they're doing. So this is a head-to-head comparison um, between uh, semaglutide 2.4 and loraglutide. Semaglutide is shown in blue. Loraglutide is shown in uh, orange. And the reason I wanted to show you this to you is to understand that these are individual outcomes. This is a waterfall plot, and each of those bars is an individual's response. So when we look at an average in a clinical trial, we see for this particular drug, on the average, we see people with semaglutide losing on the average about 15.8%, where those on liraglutide losing about 6.4%. And that's um, placebo-subtracted tri- weight loss, and that's over on the right. But when you look at the individual data, you can see that there are a few people who lose very little. There's a few people who actually gain weight, and some people lose a tremendous amount of weight. So we do not understand why some people respond to a drug compared to others, but it's important to keep in mind that there are individual responses. So here's the step five trial again, where we look at over two years, and what you can see in this trial um, is that with consistent chronic use over a two-year period, people are able to lose weight and then sustain that average level of weight loss. And we also see that a great majority, over 50%, uh, were able to lose more than 15% with semaglutide 2.4. A good third, actually a little bit more than a third, were able to lose more than 20%. And what you really see of semaglutide versus placebo is a much greater weight loss in those who are on the medication, really reinforcing the need for medication to target these physiologic pathways. So what we do is we continue the medicine if it's effective. Obviously, if it's not effective, there's no point in remaining on medication. And so we generally look at, have they lost more than 5% at three months? If it's not working, then you discontinue it and you try something else. So what about maintenance? What else can we do during maintenance besides what we talked about, which is continuing pharmacotherapy? Well, actually, it turns out that when you add exercise, you see additional weight loss and you see a greater sustaining of weight loss. And in this trial, everybody lost weight with a low-calorie diet using meal replacements. And then those that actually were able to lose 12 kilos or so, they actually were then randomized to placebo, exercise alone, liraglutide alone, or the combination of exercise and liraglutide. And what you see is those that use pharmacotherapy and exercise lost the most, and we saw the greatest change in body fat percentage. And what that really helps us realize is we want to do both, if at all possible. And sometimes people need to lose weight first with medicine and then add the activity. But what we see is a decrease in visceral fat, a decrease in the body fat, and effectively inflammation, which is what we want. Again, we want to recognize that there are individual responses to any therapeutic intervention. So whether you're doing diet Diet and support, exercise, what you see is some people will lose a lot, some people will lose a small amount, and some people actually gain weight with all of our interventions. And we still don't understand that either. And here you can see, again, in a combination of different therapies all across the board for people, what you see are these individual plots where some people are losing up to 30% and some people are gaining 6%. This is biologic individual variation of any intervention. So let's turn to a couple of other patient uh, cases. So first of all, there's Marcus, and he's lost about 7% of his weight when he used Lercaserin back in 2018, and he noticed some improvement in his blood sugar because he also has type 2 diabetes. But when the medication got discontinued, it was withdrawn by the FDA, he started regaining his weight. His doctor put him on naltrexone-bupropion in 2021, and he lost maybe 2%. His mood was better, but he was really discouraged because he wasn't able to lose weight. His physician is is concerned. His, His blood pressure has been going up in the recent months. On his psychosocial side, he's divorced. He has very limited family support, and his siblings are proud to be big men. He was a linebacker on his college team. He's currently a sales manager for an auto parts dealer, He does not want surgery because his twin brother did not do well. He regained his weight. You can see he's at great risk, right? His BMI is 42. His weight is currently 321 pounds with a 50 inch waist. His blood pressure is elevated at 148 over 87. He has a decrease in his GFR. And you can see his other diagnoses. He's got non alcoholic fatty liver disease. He's got um, obstructive sleep apnea. He's got dyslipidemia. He's got type 2 diabetes. And he has severe bilateral knee pain, arthritis from his football days, and really could use a replacement. Well, he can't get one because his BMI is 42. And you can see his medications there. He's on an SGLT2 inhibitor for the last 14 months. He's on metformin. And he's he's been on naltrexone for about a year and also on a statin. So therapy is chronic. When we stop therapy, people regain their weight. And so you can see here, they did a step one extension study with semaglutide. People lost on average of about 14% with uh, placebo-subtracted weight loss. And you can see there at week 68, they stopped the drug, they stopped the intervention, and they just had them come back periodically to look at the weight. And what you can see is that those that were on medicine gradually regained their weight over the next year. Some of them, on average, did remain a little bit lower than the placebo group. However, this is chronic therapy. So what are some other considerations for Marcus? Well, first of all, as we know from the previous slide, he regained after cessation of anti-obesity medication therapy. And this happens basically with most interventions. He has type 2 diabetes. He needs to be optimized. He's at cardiovascular risk for sure. His blood pressure is not well treated. And so we'll want to address those things in combination with addressing his weight. Also, it's really important to recognize the role of stress, the role of whether you have support or not. Are you lonely? Do you have any kind of uh, family interactions? What is a person's mood? Are they struggling with anxiety? Are they struggling with depression? Those things are actually uh, quite important. And what about the genetics? Well, we know his twin is coming up. Um, But we know the genetics are actually quite strong uh, for obesity and certainly puts you at a greater risk if there's a family member. He needs to be assessed for sleep apnea, which can aggravate his cardiovascular risk, aggravate his hypertension. We know that weight loss will improve his sleep apnea, but he may, may still need to be treated. And what about his activity, right? I mean, he's a salesperson, so he's on his feet but he's in a lot of pain with severe osteoarthritis after his injuries from uh, football and prolonged use plus the weight doesn't help as well. He can't get surgery at a BMI of 42, so we're going to need to address this. We're going to need to help him address his pain. We're going to try to get him more active. Typically, people who have been athletic their whole life, just ordinary walking, um, they don't like to do it because it doesn't seem like really good workout. However, he probably can't even walk given uh, the impact on his uh, knees. So that's going to be important. And body image is really important, both for males and females. It's important to consider that oftentimes the male image is very different with weight loss. In that history, he said he's very proud of being a big guy. He was a football player, etc. cetera. So I think it's really important to make sure you kind of understand where there may be some reluctance to losing weight. Um, just because a person can feel better, actually, in many ways, psychologically, at a particular weight. So we always have to be open to kind of figuring these things out with someone and discussing it. So what anti-obesity medication would you recommend for Marcus? So in people who struggle with obesity and weight and have type 2 diabetes, we'd like to know what happens with those anti-obesity medications. And with phentermine, topiramate, naltrexone, bupropion, liraglutide, and semaglutide, we know that a greater proportion of participants in those trials who use those given medications, actually a greater number compared to placebo, had an A1c less than 6.5% after use. So we do know that weight loss associated with anti-obesity medications was associated with improvements in A1c. And what about dose-dependent effects of the glucose-lowering agents on weight in A1C in people with type 2 diabetes? Well, we also know that with the use of GLP-1s and GIP-GLP-1s, we know that there is an increased dose responsiveness on average. So the greater the dose, the greater the improvement in hemoglobin A1C, and the greater the proportion of patients who are able to achieve an A1C less than 7%. Also, it's important um, to remember that in addition to the injections for the GLP ones, there also is an oral GLP one uh, semaglutide as well available for patients. So let's talk about Marvin Marcus's twin brother. Well, he lost about twenty two percent of his baseline body weight, or forty eight percent of his excess weight. It really is important to keep in mind that medical literature reports weight loss after gastric surgery or bariatric surgery um, differently than the surgeons do. And it's starting to change. Everyone's starting to go to baseline body weight. Nevertheless, he had a sleeve gastrectomy, and he went from 320 to 250. But then he started regaining in 2021, and now he's regained about half. He's feeling really discouraged. I mean, he still has about 10 12% down, but he wants to lose more weight, but he doesn't want any more surgery. And he's very worried about his type 2 diabetes worsening. He is a senior research librarian at a local university, so he's very sedentary in contrast to his brother. His current BMI is 37.8, and his weight is 285 pounds. So you can look down and see that he also has non alcoholic fatty liver disease. He also has cardiovascular disease. He has sleep apnea, which he actually treats uh, compared to his brother dyslipidemia, and he also has type 2 diabetes. And for now, he's just been on a statin, metformin, and low-dose aspirin. So let's talk about some other considerations for Marvin. First of all, regain after bariatric surgery procedure is not uncommon. So there's several situations. Some people after gastric uh, surgery for weight, some don't lose what's expected. So they're just people who don't respond very well. There are also people who, though, regain after about three to five years, um, start regaining. Some people may regain 40%, 50%. And some people, though it's less likely, will regain all of their weight. So you will see, and we'll talk about this in a second, you will see now uh, the use of anti medication for some of these people who have not lost enough that they needed for their comorbidities or people who are regaining Also, his type 2 diabetes management, that is a concern. Initially, the A1C still looks pretty good. However, um, as he were to regain, you might see that worsen again. And the fact that he has cardiovascular disease really puts this at the forefront of we need to help him uh, with that weight loss because obviously 10% is not enough for him. The genetics is very strong, and the identical twin studies show that even identical twins raised apart will be very similar in terms of weight, and it's one of the things that has really substantiated the role of genetics governing some of this physiology around weight. He has sleep apnea, and luckily for him, he treats his sleep apnea, but many people don't. Many people don't want to get tested, and many people, their mask sits sitting there dusty, but as we know, it really increases cardiovascular risk and increases the chance of arrhythmias and sudden death. Activity is important. He's a really sedentary guy. And that's the one difference between him and his, his twin brother, who doesn't mind being as active, but is limited by his knees. Activity is important. And finding a way that someone can gradually start to move more. You really have to find something that the patient will do, that the individual will do. Some people really are just more sedentary. They don't want to do things. So uh, that will be something you'll have to work on body image is important. For this guy, it's not so important, but for his twin, it really is important. But the fact that he's sedentary with cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and obesity puts him at risk. And this is just demonstrating the curve that some people do not respond or achieve sufficient weight loss. And you can see he lost 48% of his estimated weight loss. And so he falls over into the end of the bell curve, where it's not quite as successful, right on the edge, close to average. Uh, But many people um, lose an incredible amount. So it can be life-saving for some individuals. So they have examined the use of anti-obesity medication. Um, One is phentermine and topiramate that can prevent or reverse weight gain. And so there have been um, some study reviews looking at um, a various number of studies that looked at the use of anti-obesity medications with insufficient weight loss or excessive weight regain post-surgery. And they found that many of the anti-obesity medications were actually helpful in helping them buffer that and lose a little bit more weight and modify that. When they looked at liraglutide 3.0, They also found that role for GLP-1s in preventing or reversing the weight gain after bariatric surgery, there have been both observational studies and randomized controlled studies after a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, and there is some promising results for the use of GLP-1s after these procedures for those who regain. So what would you recommend to Marvin? All right, so some key takeaways. I think really understanding that the biological basis of obesity is complicated, Right there's hormonal signals, your body is going to protect weight. And what we've learned today is that the anti-obesity medications can really help mitigate that, mitigate those biological, physiological responses that are protecting you by decreasing appetite, decreasing intake. I think what we've also really learned is lifestyle modification is foundational, but it may be that the utilization of medication helps facilitate those changes. I think also, I think we've learned that being active really supports these changes that we like to see, decreases in visceral adiposity, decreases inflammation. And if you can find ways to help your patients become more active, either through physical therapy, et cetera, that really is important. All of this treatment has to be individualized. We have to understand that it's chronic, requiring ongoing follow-up. So medications are available. help and help prevent weight. And I think you as primary care providers are really uniquely um, situated to advocate for your patients to help optimize the health outcomes in people who are at risk to have obesity or actually have obesity. So that concludes our discussion of strategies to help get ahead of the curve to better identify and manage people with obesity. I hope you found this activity informative and useful to your practice, and I want to thank you very much for participating. Thanks. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DBP860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.